You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Any of you bring your phones to church? Okay, good. You want to get them out? <laughs> I'm going to ask you to do something, and I'm going to walk you through it. And uh, uh, if you put in your phone, DouglasDWebster.com. Yeah, Douglas D. Webster. No uh, periods, just DouglasDWebster.com. You'll get to my website. I wish it was just D. Webster, but that was taken. DouglasDWebster.com. Hi. Come on in. I know it's push. You feel like pulling. I've I've thought it was locked before. Sure. Have you gotten there? The first first item on the home page is the Sermon on the Mount in the Secular Age. You see that? It's a PDF, and that pretty much covers what I've been trying to say for these introductory messages on the Sermon on the Mount in the Dean's class and in this class. But if you'll notice on the home page, the menu... If you hit menu, notice at the end there's the Psalms. Hit the Psalms. And there you have all 150 Psalms. That's been the work I've been on for the last three years or so. And so, for example, I would, you know, it's wonderful to teach in person. And I would not be able to do any work if it didn't have that personal element of relating to people. But it's also nice to teach from afar, uh, to give people material that they can work on uh, if they have the time and the inclination. So if... This 10 to 13 page work on the Sermon on the Mount in a PDF form hopefully is accessible. And then if I just had endless time this morning, I'd probably start with Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 really is a beautiful prayer for beginning the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. And in a way, the sum and substance of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is the law and the prophets all put together. And so Psalm 1 is a beautiful prayer for beginning any kind of reflection and thought on the Sermon on the Mount. And who is the person who's most blessed and who most um, exemplifies and embodies The totality of Psalm 1, delighting in the law of the Lord day and night, and 
being fruitful in that would be Jesus, the Son of Man. Uh, fulfills that Sermon on the Mount, fulfills Psalm 1 so beautifully. Well, today is not going to be an introduction again on the Sermon on the Mount. I feel like I've been giving multiple introductions to this because remember, I wanted to understand what the Sermon on the Mount was, uh, how it is to be read in the 21st century, not in a Jewish law-focused culture, but in our culture, which has tremendous diversity and pluralism. Um, and I think the Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful sermon for the 21st century as it was for the first century. And whatever culture the Sermon on the Mount is spoken into, it's countercultural. You're not naturally at home with this sermon. Apart from the grace of God working, we would find the sermon uh, unacceptable, and we would not be able to uh, apply it or understand it apart from what Jesus Christ has done for us in the cross. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thank you for your goodness to us. And as we uh, gather around your word now for these minutes together, we pray for your blessing, help, and the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus to the glory of the Father. Amen. Well, number one on your study sheet, and we've got a, a few minutes that we can, I think, work through these points. I, I number elements here not so much as a list, but as uh, to give uh, easy access and recognition to uh, where I am on the page. Number one, Jesus presented the Beatitudes as a complete portrait of the committed disciple. Each of these Beatitudes, let me read them, Chapter 5 and verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here we have a character description of the follower of Jesus Christ. This is not what you do to merit salvation. This is who you are because of salvation. This is not what you do to kind of earn God's grace. This is who you are because of God's grace. So you really do understand, blessed are the poor in spirit, of your complete, utter full dependence upon God and his mercy. And each of these beatitudes in this uh, portrait of the committed disciple depends upon the other. Now, they're all kind of a composite picture. You don't separate them out into well, this item versus that item but they're all part and parcel of the same picture and portrait. 
I'm reading it from number one again. There's a logical progression from acknowledging our dependence upon God to mourning for our sin. Biblical meekness follows naturally from godly repentance and produces a hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Beatitudes redefine the self from the inside out. Really what the Beatitudes eliminate is any self-justification or self-centeredness or self-indulgence or self-focus at all or the willful self. Number two, any notion of self-righteousness has been ruled out by the first three Beatitudes. The righteousness we are challenged the righteousness we are challenged to hunger and thirst for is not a righteousness that feeds our pride or boosts our ego or leads us to think that we are better than other people. It is the righteousness of God, the righteousness that puts us in the right relationship with God and in right relationship with his sovereign moral order. So it's the fourth beatitude that I'd like to focus on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, as you think about that beatitude, what is it that you would question? I mean, you might question, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? You might question, well, what does Jesus mean by righteousness? What is that? that we are to focus on. And we might question for what is it to really be satisfied, uh, to be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. So the first part here is to kind of focus on what it is that Jesus refers to and means by righteousness. Without Jesus, number three, the meaning of righteousness, without Jesus we have no righteousness to hunger and thirst after because the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You see, what we're suggesting here is that righteousness is not an abstraction. It's not an ideology. It's not a theory. It is embedded and in person in the incarnate one, in Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. It is the risen Christ who guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now there are four references to righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. The first is found in the 10th verse, after the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And that's the first use of the term righteous after the fourth beatitude, that one is persecuted for righteousness' sake. A fairly famous British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, living in the same era as John Stott, argued during World War II that persecution for righteousness' sake was only on grounds of speaking specifically about Jesus Christ, specifically presenting the gospel and being persecuted because of that 
was what constituted being persecuted for righteousness sake. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, disagreed with that, that righteousness was all that God would have you be for. And whatever God would have you be for, guided by his law, guided by his spirit, all of it based on the grace of God. If you are persecuted or set back or resisted because of that, that would be being persecuted for righteousness sake. So you see there's this discussion between a very narrow definition of what it means to be persecuted for righteousness sake or a fuller description of what it is to be persecuted for righteousness sake. Number uh, B there, second, Jesus warns us that this righteousness is different from the righteousness associated with external religious practice, no matter how sincere. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the second use of the term righteous. Righteous for perse persecuted for righteousness sake, and then a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And I think we said that that's a, a heart righteousness. It's a righteousness coming from the inside, not an external code compliance, but a righteousness that comes from within. The third use of the term righteousness. Third, this righteousness does not call attention to ourselves and our acts of piety. Chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before people to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So the third use of the term righteous in the Sermon on the Mount has to do with the giving and the praying and the fasting, that that be done not for the show to others, but for your communion with the Father. And the fourth use of the term righteousness more important than anything else, righteousness is more important than anything else. To pursue righteousness becomes the believer's main ambition and goal in life. Jesus challenged his disciples to put first things first, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So there's the four uses of the term righteousness. We're kind of building an understanding of what it is to hunger and thirst for this righteousness. A righteousness that one is persecuted for. A righteousness that uh, surpasses the righteousness of the religious leaders a righteousness that is hidden, that is in communion with the Father, the giving and the praying and fasting, and a righteousness that you seek above all else, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Missionary statesman E. Stanley Jones from the 19th century um, wrote a book, a missionary to India, wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount, and he expressed it well, I think, when he wrote, you see the italicized part there under number five. The lover's attitude is not one of duty, but one of privilege. Here is the key to the Sermon on the Mount. We mistake it entirely if we look on it as, as, as it is the chart of the Christian's duty, 
Rather, it is the charter of the Christian's liberty. So we're not pursuing righteousness as a kind of duty that's imposed upon us, but it is the kind of ambition and vision and commitment that wells up within us, this pursuit of righteousness defined by uh, the word of God. Number six, uh, Boston College professor of philosophy, Roman Catholic Peter Kreeft observes, nowhere in the Bible do we find the humanist prescription of try a little harder. Man's answer is try. God's is trust. Faith alone opens the door of the soul to the divine lover who impregnates it with his own life. The Sermon on the Mount describes that life, the fruits of faith. Humanism tries to grow the fruit without the root. One of the things that is, uh, and we've talked about this before, is so uppermost in the mind of people at the Advent is the relationship between law and gospel. And where faith and obedience come into play. And it's interesting if you listen to Martin Luther, the great reformer, he would make much of the somewhat the contrast, or he has been made much of in terms of law versus gospel and the tension between the two. And the tension between working our way into the pleasure of God, which is something the Reformation countered against works righteousness. But how does the work of righteousness fit with the works of righteousness? Uh, how does it, uh, works righteousness fit with the work of righteousness and the tension between the two? But if you were to study John Wesley, in the relationship of law and gospel, he would say that the law is whatever God commands and the gospel is God's promise to fulfill those commands. So he sees the law suggesting the gospel and he sees the gospel as understanding the law. And so he would see law and gospel working very much in harmony. You can't do the law without the gospel. But the gospel drives us to the law. John Stott, the famous British Anglican uh, pastor, he said, the law sends us to Christ for salvation. The law sends us to Christ for salvation to be justified, and Christ sends us back to the law for sanctification. Interesting line, isn't it? The law sends us to Christ for salvation. Christ sends us back to the law for sanctification. So gospel and law there are not so much uh, divided as united. And this is what Peter Kreeft is saying in uh, his statement there, that it's not a humanistic prescription to try harder to seek righteousness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
It is something that Christ gives us that grace and that desire and that capacity. And it's that desire and capacity and grace that actually makes us feel, I think, guilty when we don't pursue righteousness. And that's a grace. We're not indifferent and we're not uh, apathetic to the pursuit of that righteousness. In fact, it wells up within us as a desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are all of kind of one generation here uh, this morning, um, or pretty close. Uh, My kids' generation is very much into food, very much into diet and the type of food they eat, um, very much into organic. um, uh, What's that kind of fat, trans? Trans fat is just like blasphemy. Um, It's just horrible. If you see... Uh, yeah, for, I, these are all just uh, horrible things. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting if we could transfer. And we all, because of the kind of culture we live in, can afford both the time and the money and the energy to focus a lot on food. And we do. And we think constantly of the kind of food, the quality of food uh, that we eat. And... I just wonder if, I mean, the the analogy really works here. If we could somehow transfer the passion we have for food to the passion we ought to have for righteousness, Um, that we would be that concerned to obey what God has revealed as his will. Um, Righteousness is the will of God. Will of God worked out. And if, if that could be, you know, our passion... Uh, the passion we have for food be, could be somehow transferred to the to the passion we have. And I'm not saying that concern for diet and concern for the quality of food and all of that isn't important. But I am saying that's a working analogy for us in our culture because it is so significant. Um, and food just runs through uh, Scripture. You remember the Israelites in the wilderness hungering and thirsting for the food back in Egypt and their uh, resistance to trusting God for his provision. Um, It just, uh, you know, in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you. I mean, food is a constant sort of, and I think that one of the things we can learn from that is the close integration of the physical and the spiritual. And true to a God who incarnates himself, that there is a physical side to spirituality and a spiritual side to physicality. And this integration of the image bearer of God who is made, uh, we're not bodiless souls nor soulless bodies, but bodies and souls in community. And hunger and thirst is something that we can carry over. We can understand that physically although probably few in this room, myself included, have really experienced anything close to starvation. But we do know what is, um, we we certainly are aware of that dynamic and uh, Jesus uses it here as an analogy for our passion and our hunger for 
the righteousness of God and the will of God. Number seven, Jesus defined righteousness in a specific and definite way. He described a heart righteousness that surpasses the external religious rules, a visible righteousness that has social impact. You've heard me say this in our study, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, and reconciliation instead of retaliation and a hidden righteousness that is characterized by compassion for the needy, genuine prayer, and fasting. This quote from Stott goes back to the notion of the fullness of righteousness. Number eight, as you turn the page, John Stott writes, it would be a mistake to suppose that the biblical word righteousness means only a right relationship with God on the one hand, and a moral righteousness of character and conduct on the other. For biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to God. Now, that definition, it's not just about being right with God, and it's not just about a personal moral code. It is about the fullness of the will of God applied to the totality of life. And so no matter what we're doing, daily, there is the opportunity to seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness in all that we do, in decisions, uh, family decisions, in business decisions, in the priorities that we set for life, in the pursuits that we have given ourselves to. You remember I said uh, about the Sermon on the Mount is that today there does not seem to be a very strong quest for salvation. The quest seems to be more for meaning. People are not fearing the wrath of God, and they are not looking to God for salvation. What they are very concerned about is some significance, some purpose, some meaning. That's how they'll phrase it, and that's how they'll describe it. It's almost as if you know, you've eliminated the, the reality of God from the picture, and everything is framed by what is immediate and by what is imminent. And there isn't a concern for God, or there is not in any way the fear of God, or the expectation of kind of knowing God, but there is this quest for significance. What we have become really good at is creating meaning out of nothing. And to maybe illustrate that in the simplest form is... Uh, is football season in Alabama. <laughs> We're good at creating meaning out of nothing. Uh, Charles, did I offend you? Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
I'd be somewhat facetious, of course, with that comment. But uh, God created out of nothing. We are getting good at being our own God and creating out of nothing and creating our own sense of meaning, our own sense of purpose, our own sense of significance. And it's not grounded or founded in any fundamental truth or reality. It's not founded in God. It's not founded in the Creator. It's not founded in the Redeemer. What Stott's encouraging us to do here is to pursue the righteousness, the will of God that's found within the creation, found within redemption, empowered by the grace of Christ. Uh, we've got just a few minutes. Um, under hunger and thirst, below number 10, the C.S. Lewis quote, and with this, we'll kind of wrap it up. Do you see where I am? C.S. Lewis describes how the fourth beatitude reveals the secret of a happy life. I think this is a great uh, summation for us. When we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be, we must be wanting what in fact will not make us happy. Those divine demands which sound to our natural ears most like those of a despot and least like those of a lover, in fact, marshal us where we should want to go if we knew what we wanted. Now, the analogy here that's working is the parenting analogy. And uh, my daughter knows better what Micah, who's three and a half, should do and be, right? And we've all been in that role of parenting. And we know that the parent knows better for the child, especially the young child. Um, and this is what the analogy that Lewis is building on here. God really does know what will make us happy. And we don't. We're too young and too immature and too uh, off course uh, with our own uh, human condition to understand. Those divine demands which sound to our natural ears most like those of a despot and like, least like those of a lover, in fact, marshal us where we should want to go if we knew what we wanted. He demands our worship, our obedience, our prostration. Yet the call is not only to prostration and awe, it is to a reflection of the divine life, a creaturely participation in the divine attributes, which is far beyond our present desires. We are bidden to put on Christ, to become like God. God gives what he has, not what he has not. And he gives us the happiness that there is, not the happiness that is not. To be God, to be like God, to share his goodness in creaturely response, to be miserable. These are the only three alternatives. Those are the three alternatives. Either to be God, which is a sinful blasphemy. Two, to be like God and to share his goodness in creaturely response. That is the way of grace. Or third, to be miserable. And these are the only three options. 
If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and the only food that any possible universe ever can grow, then we must starve eternally. Well, that's a beautiful summary, I think, of the hunger and thirsting for righteousness. To be continued, I can tell by the roar that it's time to leave. May the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy, and as we put our trust in you, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.